Brother Chris, if you'd come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we just want to thank you for this, another opportunity we have today just to open up your word. We just pray as we look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you just open up our ears and our hearts for us to really hear what you want us to hear from this passage. I pray for those who do know you, that you just help them grow in their love for you. But those who don't know you, those who might be making a false profession of faith, I just pray that you bring them to conviction and a saving knowledge of your son. And above all things, we just pray that you be glorified. Amen. Okay. If you were to die tonight and God asked you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? If you've ever taken an evangelism class, you were probably taught to ask that question. Most people are answered by talking about how they're a good person or all the good things that they do. In other words, they think they're good enough to get into heaven. But the Bible tells us that no one is good enough to get into heaven and no one can earn their salvation by doing good deeds. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. As Christians, we believe what the Apostle Paul said, but when it comes to your family, family member and friends, we sometimes have a tendency to think that maybe they are good enough to get into heaven. We look at a family member who is not a believer, but is outward, outwardly a really good person. He's been faithfully married to his wife for 15 years, and he's doing a great job raising his kids. He's honest. He's generous. He would give the stranger the shirt off his back, and he always stops to help that stranded motorist. In many ways, he's a lot nicer and more holy than most of our Christian friends. He may not be a Christian, but we think that he is as close to being one as a person can get without actually being one. We don't say it out loud, but we think that maybe he is the exception to the role. Since how can someone who is so good not end up in heaven? Besides, if he talks like Christians and walks like one, maybe he is one. Unfortunately, we often fail to witness to these family members and leave them with a false sense of security about their eternal state. But on the other hand, we all have that relative who's obviously a very bad person and we tend to think that there's no way he can make it to heaven. He's been arrested multiple times and has stolen from just about everyone in his life more than once. He's a chronic liar and always seems to be working on the next big deal, which means he's going to take advantage of someone. He is definitely not a Christian and we think he is as far from being one as someone can get. We don't say it out loud, but we think that not even Jesus would want him. Unfortunately, we often fail to witness to family members who seem to be lost causes and don't even bother to tell them how to get saved. Both of these mindsets are wrong and fundamentally deny the gospel and the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. Neither of our family members that we just mentioned profess to be Christian. 
However, the Bible tells us that many people profess to be Christians and are counting on their works to save them instead of the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that these people are self-deceived and they think they're in good standing with God when they're not. They may think they're okay since they're not committing any of their so-called big sins. And they're checking all the right Christian boxes. Reading their Bible and praying every night? Check. Scripture memorization? Check. Attending church? Check. Teaching Sunday school? Check. Tithing? Check. Volunteering at all the church work days? Check. However, if they examine themselves, they would see that they are doing these things because it makes them feel good, not because they love God and want to know him more. But it's not just other people who need to examine themselves. You need to examine yourself as well. What are you trusting in for your salvation? Are you counting on all your good deeds that you're doing to earn a spot in heaven? Are you counting on the fact that you hold to the right confession of faith or all the theological knowledge that you have to save you? Or are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Thankfully, Jesus Christ addressed these very issues in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. This very familiar passage of scripture is found in the section of the Gospel of Luke known as the Journey to Jerusalem. It is one of the handful of parables that Jesus told his disciples as they traveled to Jerusalem. While many parables are found in multiple gospel accounts, this one is only found in the Gospel of Luke. Let's read our text, starting in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 9 tells us that he was speaking to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. By worldly standards, these men were good people. They thought very highly of themselves and looked down on others. But Jesus used this parable to masterfully expose their hearts. I pray and hope that he will use it to expose your heart if you're trusting in yourself instead of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to examine this parable in three points. Two men, two prayers, and two outcomes. First, let's look at two men. In the beginning of this parable, both the Pharisee and the tax collector were far from God, but only one of them knew it. These men surprisingly had a lot in common. They were both Jewish men who were Imago Dei, or made in the image of God. They were both in Adam and under the covenant of works, 
In other words, they were not saved. They were both under the old covenant and its sacrificial system. They were both living in Jerusalem while it was under the control of the Roman Empire. And they both went to the temple for the same reason, to pray. But in many other ways, they could not be any more different. Let's take a few minutes to examine the Pharisee. When we read this parable, we make the mistake of looking at the Pharisee from our vantage point, where we have the entire New Testament that is full of warnings not to be like them. But reading it from our perspective, we miss the point of the parable. Do you understand it rightly? We have to read this parable using the eyes of the original audience. The Jewish people at that time did not see the Pharisees as the bad guys. They looked up to them, in a way, saw them as heroes. If you invited a Pharisee to a party, he would be the guest of honor. It was considered a privilege just to have a Pharisee make an appearance at your gathering. They were considered to be the religious experts, and they were the spiritual leaders in Israel. And they were very conservative in their theology. It has been said they memorized the entire Pentateuch. It means they memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That includes all those parts we skip over during our Bible reading plans, such as the genealogies and the description of Adam's priestly garments. And outwardly, they lived what looked like a perfect life. They were so zealous to be righteous that they created hundreds of laws to help keep God's law. But looks can be deceiving. What we see on the outside is not always what is on the inside. While they were known for keeping the law, they ignored the heart behind it. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23, verse 23, when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provision of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things you should have done without neglecting others. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus warned us on multiple occasions about the heart and motivations of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, but when he becomes one, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as yourselves. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. The Pharisees may have given off a godly appearance and fooled those around them, but God knew their heart. What about you? Have you cleaned and polished the outside of your cup while ignoring the dirt and filth on the inside? If you're living a lie like the Pharisees, you may fool everybody around you. They all may think you're the godliest man or woman alive, but you are not fooling God. He knows your heart, and he knows what you're trusting in. We just looked at the Pharisee, but let's take a few minutes to look at the tax collector. The tax collector was not just an ancient version of an IRS agent. IRS agents are held to strict standards and operate under intense oversight. Everything they do is governed by policies and procedures. However, tax collectors during the time of Jesus had no code of conduct, and there was no oversight. 
they were basically free to operate however they wanted. The hatred the average American has for the IRS is nothing compared to the hatred that Israelites had for tax collectors. They were social outcasts and were one of the most despised people in Israel. Prostitutes and other criminals were held in a higher regard than they were. They were seen as the worst type of sinner and someone who is far from God as a person can be. They were considered to be so untrustworthy that they were not even allowed to testify in court. But in order to understand why tax collectors were so hated, we have to understand what was going on in Israel at that time. Israel was under the control of the oppressive and wicked Roman Empire, who imposed high taxes on the Jewish people. Tax collectors would buy a franchise from the Roman Empire to collect the Roman taxes from their own countrymen. They were then allowed to increase the amount of tax to whatever they wanted and keep the difference. They were well known for gouging the people and using unfair weights and measures. As a result, they were seen as traitors who were aiding and abetting the very people that were oppressing Israel. And they were getting very rich in the process. They were so despised that anyone who even associated with them were ostracized from society and were condemned. With this in mind, you can understand why the Pharisees always made a big deal over Jesus eating and socializing with tax collectors. We see this in Luke chapter 5, verses 29 through 32. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to the disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now let's move on to our second point, two prayers. In our passage, both the Pharisee and the tax collector prayed. However, their prayers were radically different. And the difference in their prayers led to drastically different outcomes. But before we look at the outcomes, we must look at how each man prayed. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Prayer is how we talk to God. It is the primary way that we communicate our emotions, our hopes, and our desires to him. Through prayer, we can cry out to God when we're hurting, and it's one of the best ways we can offer praises to him. It sounds odd, but prayer is not just something we do. It is an attitude. A.W. Pink said it best when he said, Prayer is not as much as an act as it is an attitude, an attitude of dependency, dependency upon God. In this verse, we see that both men prayed. However, we see that only one man truly prayed to God. First, let's look at the tax collector's prayer, I'm sorry, the Pharisee's prayer in 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. There is some controversy among scholars about how to properly handle the beginning part of verse 11. The translation that I use, the New American Standard, translates it as, 
The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. The Christian Standard Bible translates it as, the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. The King James and the New King James Version translates it as, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. All those are good translations of the verse, and they all point to one thing. He was praying to his God, which was himself. In these two short sentences, he used the word I five times. Stephen Hamilton has rightly noted, it was not a prayer. It was a boasting session. The Pharisee's prayer was a prayer of a man who was self-absorbed and self-righteous. Self-righteous is a wicked sin that attempts to dethrone God. According to John MacArthur, the very nature of self-righteousness is to justify self and condemn others. In so doing, people play God because they judge themselves on the basis of their own standards and wisdom. Self-righteousness is the worst of sins because it is unbelief. It trusts in self rather than God. It trusts in self to determine what is right and wrong and to determine who does what is right and wrong. Self-righteousness claims to be both lawgiver and judge, prerogative that belong only to the Lord. The Pharisee's self-righteousness is on full display in the second half of verse 11 when he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He was comparing himself to others, and it almost seems like he is telling God how lucky he is to have a man like him as as his disciple. It is almost like he is expecting God to roll out a red carpet for him when he gets to heaven. But did you notice that he only compared himself to the people committing what are considered to be the major sins? Sins that are not easy to hide. He does not mention what is sometimes referred to as the respectable sins, which can be hidden from public views. Sins that are so often overlooked and excused. Respectable sins like pride, jealousy, discontentment, impatience. These so-called respectable sins are no less sinful than more overt sins. They're just easier to hide and therefore easier to justify. The Pharisees were masters at hiding and just justifying their sins. What about you? What is also shocking is that during this prayer, the Pharisee looks around and picks out the tax collector to compare himself to. Even while praying, he couldn't help himself. He had to look around for someone to look down on, someone to compare himself to, someone to condemn. The Pharisee continues his prayer in verse 12, where he prays, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Jewish law only required fasting once or twice a year. However, Pharisees fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. That works out to be almost 105 times a year. They were also very zealous about their tithing. If they would buy a bag of seeds, they would count out each individual seed to make sure they tithe exactly the right amount. And when this Pharisee prayed, he did not offer praises to God. He did not ask for mercy. All he did was pat himself on the back for all the good things he did and talk about how much better he was than other people. 
When we read his prayer, it should break our hearts and scare us at the same time. This is a man who devoted himself to religious practices, which is a good thing. This is a man who read the scriptures and believed in them wholeheartedly, which is a good thing. This is a man who strived to live a holy life, which is a good thing. But in all of his zeal to serve and live for God, he lost sight of God. He knew the scriptures forwards and backwards, but he did not know God. Jesus said in John chapter 5, starting verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of the Father in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not see the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you have believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for you wrote about me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? I pray that when you look and search the scriptures, you see Christ and run to him. Now let's take a few minutes to look at the tax collector's prayer. A prayer that could be rightly called a sinner's prayer. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The tax collector was standing some distance away from everyone else. He knew that his sins separated him from God, and he understood that he was unworthy to be anywhere near God's presence. Another thing we notice about the tax collector's prayer is his posture. It was customary during this time to pray with your eyes open and your arms raised. But his posture was different. It was the posture of a man who was broken by his sin and for the first time in his life was coming face to face with the holiness of God. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven and he beat his breast out of deep conviction over his sin. His prayer was not polished. It was not elegant. But it was heartfelt and, was, and that was all that mattered. He simply prayed, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The closer you examine his short prayer, the more profound it becomes. The word that was translated as mercy or merciful is not the word that is usually translated that way. The word translated as mercy in this verse actually means to be propitious or to atone for sin. It means to turn away God's wrath by the means of a sacrifice. The tax collector is actually asking God to atone for his sin. He knew that he could not atone for his own sins. Only God could. And as Jesus told this parable, he knew that in a short amount of time, he would be going to the cross to propitiate or atone for the sins of all those who who would repent and believe. Tax collectors included. The Apostle Apostle John reminded us in 1 John 4.10 that in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Another remarkable thing about the tax collector's prayer 
is that he refers to himself as the sinner. He did not call himself a sinner, but the sinner. Just like the Apostle Paul, he saw himself as the chief of sinners. Do you, do you see yourself as the chief of sinners? Now let's move on to our third point. Two outcomes. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee went home in the same condition that he came in, on his way to hell. Sadly, he thought he earned his spot in heaven, but he was self-deceived. His unexpected outcome would have shocked the people who heard this parable. Why was such a religious man rejected by God? He was rejected because he was trying to earn his own salvation. He did not see himself as a sinner in need of grace. He was trusting in his own righteousness. He was trusting in himself to save himself. The late R.C. Sprawl reminds us that on Judgment Day, if you trust in yourself, you will stand by yourself without Christ. The Pharisee made the mistake of thinking that his good deeds would earn him a right standing before God. He must have forgotten what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 64, verse 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and iniquities like the wind take us away. On the outside, he looked perfectly clean, but on the inside, he had a cold, dead heart, a heart that did not really love God. He loved himself and worshipped himself. He did works to serve himself and not God. He stands as a warning to us. We can't be religious but not know God. The final outcome of the tax collector would have been even more shocking to the original audience. In, the, in their eyes, he would be the last person that would be accepted by God. But God had different plans. The tax collector did not go home the way that he came. He went home a blood-bought child of God. He was born again. He was saved. He was redeemed. Verse, per, verse 14 tells us that he went to his house justified. This verse is referring to justification. It is the one-time act where you're declared righteous. It occurs the moment you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone for your, for your salvation. But notice that all the tax collector did was cry out to God, and God saved him. He did not have to clean, clean himself up first. He did not have to prove that he had a track record of doing good things. He did not have to pay a penance for his sins. He did not need to go to a priest to mediate for him. He went directly to God. The tax collector was not saved because he prayed a specific prayer or said some magic words. He was saved because he put his faith in Jesus Christ and his prayer flowed out of that faith. He was justified by faith alone. In that very moment, God took a man who was enslaved to sin and set him free. God made him a new creation in Jesus Christ. And he did the same thing for you if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. And you may be asking yourself, what happened to the tax collector? Did he continue taking advantage of people and living in a lifestyle of sin? Jesus does not tell us what happened to him, 
Besides, he went home justified. However, it is the clear testimony of Scripture that if God saves you, he will change you. Robert Briggs has said, the Bible knows nothing of our Christianity that leaves people unchanged and self-serving. The tax collector may have experienced a radical change like Zacchaeus did in Luke chapter 19, where he immediately started making restitution and his transformation was immediately seen by those around him. Or his change may have been slower, where he had increasing victory over his sins over a long period of time. At times, it could be two steps forward, one step back. But there would have been clear evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Either way, there would have been evidence of a changed life. As a believer, you may not believe this parable applies to you because you've already been saved. Nothing can be further from the truth. Let's briefly look at four different ways that this parable applies to believers. First, this parable reminds us that we are justified by faith alone. Justification by faith alone is a core belief that separates Christianity from all false religions. It was the main doctrine behind the Protestant Reformation. It reminds us that we do not add anything to our salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Because of our sin, Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us. Meditating on that truth should humble us. We should seek to kill the sin of pride whenever it tries to sneak into our hearts. Remembering that we are just by faith alone will help keep us from being judgmental about other Christians who do not look like us or talk like us. It also helps us not to look down on unbelievers because we did nothing to earn the gift of salvation. God did not save us because we were better than they are. It also reminds us that, the, that works did not save us and works were not keep us saved. However, that does not mean that good works are not important. In the, begin of the, in the beginning of the sermon, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, that states, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. After informing us that we're not saved by good works, the Apostle Paul immediately addresses the, addresses the importance of them in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we could walk in them. What Paul is explaining here is the believer will do good works. He doesn't do them to become saved. He does them because he is saved. And when you were saved, you were giving a new heart that is radically different from your old one. A new heart that is no longer enslaved to sin. You desire to keep his commandments out of love for him. And growing in holiness is evidence that you have been justified by faith alone. Second, this parable reminds us that having good theology cannot save you. The Pharisees had what was considered to be orthodox and conservative theology, but all their knowledge did was puff them up. And this could be a big problem in our circles. We pride ourselves in having our theological I's dotted and T's crossed. We can have debates about complex theological concepts such as impassibility, simplicity, and superlapsarianism. But this pursuit of theological knowledge can become an idol. It can lead a person to trust in his knowledge to save him instead of Christ. It can lead a person to make the circle of who is and is not a Christian smaller and smaller until they're the only person left standing in it. I'm not saying that learning theology is a bad thing. 
I strongly believe that all Christians should be encouraged to dive deep into theology. I also strongly believe that one of the reasons why so many churches are in such bad shape is because their pastors have neglected to teach theology to their congregations. What I'm saying is that when you study theology, make sure you're doing it to know God more, not just to know more about God. There is a difference. Third, rightly understanding this parable will affect how you evangelize. This parable teaches us that unsaved men are righteous in their own eyes. They compare themselves to others and think they're better than they actually are. Several years ago, Rachel and I were watching TV and they were interviewing a serial killer. And this serial killer was talking about he was not as bad as another serial killer in the same prison because he did not kill as many people as the other guy did. Proverbs 21 verse 2 reminds us that every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. When you're witnessing to someone, walk him through the Ten Commandments. Show him how he has broken God's law and where he's spending eternity in hell unless he repents and believes. Romans 3, starting in verse 19. Know that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. <clears throat> the law of God will expose the true nature of a person's heart. The first scene in this parable reminds us that even religious people need to hear the gospel. Just because someone has been attending church for a long time does not mean they're truly saved or that they even understand the gospel. One thing that I learned very quickly doing biblical counseling is that there are many modern-day Pharisees who look really good on the outside. However, on the inside, they have a cold, dead heart and despise those around them who do not meet their standards. These modern-day Pharisees need to hear the gospel, even if they've heard it a hundred times before. The tax collector in this parable reminds us that there is no one so bad that God cannot save them. There are no lost causes. It gives us hope to those of us who have a prodigal child. If God can save a man like the tax collector, then he can save your son or daughter. The tax collector also reminds us that just like him, we are sinners saved by grace. We did not deserve this beautiful gift of salvation, and we still don't. Meditating on the fact that we are sinners who are daily shown the mercy of God will keep us, keep us from despising unbelievers who are living in sin. That doesn't mean that we make ex excuses for the sin or that we do not confront them. What it means is that we go to them as a sinner who has been saved by grace. This understanding will help us to witness to them in a loving and gentle way. And fourth, this parable reminds us that we can draw near to God. In verse 13, we saw that before he was saved, the tax collector was staying as far from the presence of God as possible. Believers can draw near to God because Jesus Christ broke down the barrier between man and God and became our mediator. But what does it mean that we can draw near to God? It means that we can have an audience with the Almighty God, the God who cares about you and loves you, the God who sent his only Son to redeem you from your sins. It is because of Jesus Christ that we can experience true fellowship with God and experience his grace whenever we need it. Hebrews 4.16 says, 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help those in the time of need. That means we can go to him for comfort when we feel like our trials and tribulations are slowly choking the life out of us. We can go to him when we feel like we do not have the strength to go on. And remember the sweet words of our loving Savior in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, just a quick word to the unbeliever. Just like the Pharisee, you cannot earn your way to heaven. Your life will not be adjudged according to some divine balancing act where your good deeds must outweigh your bad. You will be judged according to, according to God's perfect standard as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And you will give an account for each and every one that you have broken. Think of every lie you've ever told. Think about every time that you've used God's name in vain, both in excitement and in anger. And those are just two of the commandments. On Judgment Day, you will be judged and found guilty for violating God's holy law and will be sentenced to an eternity in hell. But God has provided a way for you to be redeemed, to be justified or declared righteous, to have your sins forgiven, to have your sins removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And the only person who can save you and do that for you is Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, turn from them, and trust in him alone for your salvation. This can be the very day of your salvation. Look to the cross and flee from the wrath to come. His word tells us in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just come before before you today. We just want to thank you for this time we just, just had just declaring your word. I just pray that anything that was unbiblical or unfruitful, you just let fall upon deaf ears. But I just pray that for those who don't know you, you open up their ears and their hearts and bring them to the saving knowledge of your son. And as just for the believers, I just pray that you just help us to remember that we're justified by faith alone and not the things that we do. And that we are just sinners saved by grace. And we just take that to heart and let it humble us so you can approach those who don't know you with compassion, and calm through repentance. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.